Well, do you remember these days when you had to put together a science fair project? I remember in maybe the fifth grade, fourth grade even, starting to stress about when you get to the upper grades, I think it was seventh and eighth grade, they were both required to do a science fair project. What is this science fair project anyway? Well, you have to, you know, whine to your parents for weeks for them to get a poster board, and they, oh, well, I didn't stop by there today, or I forgot. Finally, they get a poster board, and then you have to find things to put on the poster board that makes you look scientific, that makes it look like you know what you're talking about. You have to come up with some kind of an issue in science that you can replicate in some way. And the teachers, I remember trying to tell us, well, first you have to ask a question, then you have to have a hypothesis, and then how are you going to explore this, and then conclusions, all these steps. And it would stress me out. Does anybody remember that? Those of you without your hands up, you love science fair projects, don't you? It was your bread and butter. You were the one that got the blue ribbon while the rest of us got, well, the red ribbon. Yeah. And everybody else always seemed to have the better project than you had. I mean, this one looks pretty cool. We eat nails for breakfast. And I don't know if you can read. I'm sure you can. But part of his question there is, which breakfast cereal has the most iron in it? And so he was trying to test for that. Did he have a magnet in there? I don't know what he did. This is another one. Why do leaves change colors? Hey, that's a good idea. I remember going around and looking and saying, why didn't I think of these ideas? I had these lame ideas. And this was back in the day before I could go to Google. And now they have, you know, science fair projects for idiots. I would have bought that book. Man. Of course, the teacher probably has the book. And I automatically would have gotten not even the, yellow, the red ribbon. I don't know. And then this was the most nerve-wracking part. And sometimes you had to stand by your project. Am I the only one that went through this? I mean, this was, this was terrible. You had to stand by your project. And here comes somebody with a paper Clipboard, yes, the clipboard. If you don't have a clipboard, you're not official, but you have some kind of ribbon badge thing. You have a clipboard, and you just look. You don't look like this sometimes, but you look like this. And you look, and and sometimes they ask questions. And I don't know is never a good answer. Why did you do this? What made you think that you should try that? Why didn't you do this? I just want to check this off. Science fair project. And then somebody would be awarded for, you know best science fair project and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just get on with it. Scientific method. Anybody remember this? Ask a question, do background research, construct a hypothesis, which is a fancy word for this is what I think. Test your hypothesis by doing an experiment, analyze your data and draw a conclusion and report your result. Was your hypothesis correct? I remember being so confused. You need a hypothesis. What's a hypothesis? Well, it's what you think. Well, what if I, uh, what if I get it wrong? It doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter if I get it wrong? What is a hypothesis? Yeah, okay. This was more at my level. The effect of texting on Mario Kart performance. Now, some of you may not understand what I was talking about. Mario Kart's a little video game with, with little Mario. Remember Mario, Luigi, any little, anyway. These kids here, you can kind of tell by the look on their faces. This was right up their alley too. Let's see how texting influences driving on a video game. Yeah, these are probably the kids that got a blue ribbon over my thing, too. Does water conduct electricity? I don't know. I'm still in counseling for my science fair project experience. Now, don't get me wrong. Science has done remarkable things for us. There is no question about it. Through science, electricity was discovered. Not by me. Through science, we have antibiotics without which I would be dead five, six, eight times over. How about you? Through science, we have things like vaccines. Through science, we've been able to better understand the human body. It's incredible to me the things that they are able to do today in the name of medicine. RNA sequencing, genome editing, molecular structure of DNA, and all these kinds of things. But my fear is that if we're not careful, science can become a replacement for God. Our God-given ability to think and to reason, to experiment and even predict with some reliability the outcomes, perhaps has caused some to think, we don't need God. We don't need prayer. We don't need some miraculous intervention. Science has all the answers we need. And when you take God out of science which really could be said of many things. You take God out of marriage, you take God out of music, you take God out of child rearing. You know, you can put in just about whatever you want. But when you take God out of science, it can become a very slippery slope that can lead 
to false conclusions. We've been going through a series on Paul. I suppose we can include this one. It's really more of a a parenthesis, if you will, in the middle of our series. But I'm calling it Beware of Fake Science. And this is, uh, I'm going to start in our last piece. You know, Paul appealed to Caesar. He wanted to go to Rome. We haven't quite gotten Paul up to Rome yet. But in today's piece, Paul is writing from Rome. I know we're kind of skipping a few steps and we're getting him up there, but he's writing from Rome to Timothy. And you might recall that Timothy, and he already had an interaction in Acts chapter 16. Why are we skipping ahead? Because I feel like it's a little bit timely with this COVID-19 and all these other things. But in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Timothy meet up. Paul is obviously much older. We learn that Timothy appreciated the sacredness of the work of a minister He was not appalled at the prospect of suffering and persecution. He was willing to be taught. And so Paul and Timothy hit it off right off the bat. They got along really well. They must have had a lot in common. There was a special bond between Paul and Timothy. And so in this piece today, we're already placing Paul in Rome. He's there in prison, but he has some leeway there. It's almost more like house arrest. And he's writing, doing a lot of writing there in Rome. And I'm thankful that he did. And so are you. And one of those things that he wrote was to Timothy, this young adult, just starting out in ministry. And as he's giving advice, and there's a lot of things we could look at, but we already have too much to talk about this morning. But in his last few lines in his first letter, are you confused? First letter, first time he writes to Timothy. But the very end of the letter, this is what he says. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. He could have said it some other ways. Hold fast. Don't give up. Don't give in. Stay true to your calling, if you will. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. And then if you have your Bibles open to the passage, all that's left is grace be with you. Amen. Paul. Why would Paul end his first letter to Timothy in this way. I imagine Timothy, the young adult, reading this letter that he just got from not just Paul, but the Paul, this big, huge person in ministry. Now he's writing and he's saying, dear Timothy, wow. And he's writing, he's pouring over, he's able to read and reread this letter. Keep that which is committed to thy trust, Timothy. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. And what is this keep that which is committed to thy trust? Well, he says earlier on in this first letter to Timothy, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. We could say the grace of the gospel that's so exceedingly abundant. And in fact, the verse right before Paul talks about this very grace that changed his life. It's been some time since we talked about Paul's conversion in its totality. But he reminds Timothy in verse 13 of chapter 1, when he was a blasphemer and a persecutor, he was a Jesus and a Jesus follower hater. In fact, he went beyond hating, but he got letters from people. He traveled great distances, 150 miles. Yet Jesus, in his grace, knocked Paul off his horse, off of his high horse, if you will. Paul was touched by the hand of Jesus Christ. And so, really, Saul, the proud and arrogant, went to Paul, a humble servant, who shared this glorious gospel with everyone he met, everywhere he went, including Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, you too keep what has been committed to you, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel of grace. But then Paul also saw some dangers, and he's giving some warning to Timothy right here at the end, as he's a young minister. Beware of profane babblings. And he's especially concerned with one, the oppositions of science falsely so-called. He's saying to Timothy, you will be encountering fake science. Watch out. Don't just watch out for fake news, but watch out for fake science. Is that advice to Timothy still relevant for us today? Is there still such a thing as fake science? As you hear them drone on about millions and billions of years, as they talk about our origin of the species and how the greatest discovery was Darwin and so on and so forth. This is a picture of David Kinnaman. He's the president now of the Barnett Group, and he wrote this book called You Lost Me. And in that book on page 22, he says, there's a 43% drop-off between teen and early adult years in terms of church engagement. 
43% drop-off between teen and adult years. Now, this is for the Christian church in North America. This isn't confined to Adventism. But somebody else came along and said, I want to see how that then compares uh, with the Adventist church. Sure enough, the Adventist church, it's 37%. That's a little bit better, if you will, in that age category that, for whatever reason, stop attending. But then there's some reasons that uh, this, bar, this book uh, by uh, David Kinnaman published. These are the reasons. Grievances towards the church. Number one, intolerant of doubt. Number two, enlists, or sorry, uh, elitist, thank you, in its relationships. Number three, anti-science in its beliefs. Number four, overprotective of its members. Five, shallow in its teachings. And number six, repressive of differences. And so this is why they say Christian young adults are leaving the church in North America. This same study was more or less replicated, except this time let's ask Adventist young people, young adults, to see if it would be any different. And how did we do? Well, the Seventh-day Adventists are the top portion of each line, the lighter portion, if you will. And have mercy, we scored worse in every single category, except our overall out the door was less, which is good. But which one in particular did our own Seventh-day Adventist millennials have a hard time with? Science. How the church relates to science. We live longer than any other people group on the planet because we follow the counsel given to us in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Yet the prevailing notion is that Seventh-day Adventists don't understand science. In this book I, I mentioned earlier, the author David says, Every week I am contacted by young Christians who tell me that their faith cannot survive their interest in science. They feel the church has forced them into an either-or decision. They can either stay true to the Christian faith or become intellectually honest scientists. Isn't that interesting how they use religious terms to push God out of science? We're going to be intellectually honest. What saddens my heart, perhaps the most, is that many of our Adventist universities and medical schools, our young adults are confronted with this very dilemma, even in our own schools. You could expect it in outside schools. We'll give them a pass. But within Seventh-day Adventism, we have either non-Adventist professors or even our Adventist professors putting before the students these ideas. You need to be intellectually honest. And they're careful in their language, but they're very clear in what they're trying to communicate. And the students are picking it up. And some of them are even writing me, Pastor Wright, this is what my professor is saying. What should I do? How sad is that? Some of these professors saying, if you're going to make it through medical school and get through this class, you're going to have to study on Sabbath. Have mercy. I'm thankful for one student that comes to mind that decided, nope, from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, I'm not going to study. I'm going to follow the commandments of God. And that's exactly what they did. And they graduated head of the class. In fact, I can think of one from this community who is really heading some of that up. And some of the other students are actually coming to this individual and saying, what's your secret? What are you doing? How are you studying? Can we study with you? And he says, well, I don't study on Sabbath. You need to know that. Oh, no, 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 that's never going to work for me. I will die. Suit yourself. But the point is, our own young people are coming under this pressure. Is it going to be my faith or intellectual honesty when it comes to science? Oh, Timothy. Oh, Jacob. Oh, Sarah. Oh, anybody name you want to put in the, the gap. Keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. You see, my friends, this is not an antiquated book, but I believe the Bible is more relevant today than perhaps it's ever been. I want to show you a clip here. Hopefully the sound will work and not blast you out, uh, but it shows very clearly uh, the agenda and the push of the world that science is king. Let's see if this will play. At a time when things are most uncertain, we turn to the most certain thing there is, science. Science can overcome diseases, create cures, and yes, beat pandemics. It has before. It will again. Because when it's faced with a new opponent, it doesn't back down. It revs up, asking questions till it finds what it's looking for. That's the power of science. So we're taking our science and unleashing it. Our research, experts, and resources. All in an effort to advance potential therapies and vaccines. Other companies and academic institutions are doing the same. The entire global scientific community is working together to beat this thing. And we're using science to help make it happen. Because when science wins, we all win. 
catch the message? Science will win. In a time of uncertainty, we turn to the most certain thing there is. Science. They seem to think that science can solve everything. And some might think I'm overstating this, but to many in those fields, the medical field and beyond, science is God. And we live in a culture where that is more or less believed by many. Don't agree of the power and influence of science? Insert Exhibit A. President of our own nation, surrounded by two top scientists, made a decision to shut down our economy. And notice what they said. Just showed you a picture of them. Uh, It says, President admitted that during a press conference in April that two very smart people came into his office and urged him to lock down the economy or 2.2 million Americans would die from the China virus. But President Trump did not say who those two very smart people were. You know now who they are, don't you? And they went in based on science. They told the president, shut down this revved up economy. Shut it down. And he did, which goes to show how powerful science is, doesn't it? Could I have come in there as a minister of the gospel and shown prophecy or Bible verses or anything else and Trump shut down the economy? Is he even going to give me a hearing in his office? Is he going to give you a hearing? Who's he going to give a hearing? But he gave them a hearing and all of a sudden this man that is so, at least he likes to think that he is Mr. Economy. And I have to say he's done pretty well in those realms. But they say shut it down and he says, say what? And then he does. I mean, this boggles my mind. Just two people in a conversation with one person that led to trillions of dollars lost and perhaps thousands of lives saved. And I'm not saying it was the wrong or right thing to do. What I am saying is that when science speaks, politicians move out of the way. Theologians often move out of the way. Businessmen move out of the way. Virtually everyone moves out of the way. But I want to pose the question, could the science ever be wrong. This is a news headline. Governor Cooper, our own Governor Cooper, we're going to rely on the what? Science and the data and the facts to determine when to begin phase two of reopening. And we've heard that over and over and over, haven't we? We're going to follow the science. We're going to follow the science wherever the science leads. Science is going to dictate, if you will. Science will be our guide. Protesters? No. Politics? No. The only thing that will sway me as governor will be science. We're going to follow the science. This article says, White House takes new line after dire report on death poll. That's the report I was talking about that went in to the president. Where did they get the report? Where did Fauci and Burke, or is it Bricks or Burks, get the report? Well, they got the report from the United Kingdom from a gentleman who said, you are going to lose 2 million people if you don't do something. They showed the president graphs that looks perhaps something like this and what we have to do. And we have this. Dr. Brick's description of the findings was consistent with those in the report released on Monday by an epidemic modeling group at Imperial College London. The lead author of the study, Neil Ferguson, an epidemiologist professor, epidemiology professor, said in an interview that his group had shared their projections with the White House task force about a week ago, and that early copy of the report was sent over the weekend. This is the report that changed everything. But what fascinates me about the report, we read here, the report, which was not released in a peer-reviewed journal, but was authored by 30 scientists on behalf of Imperial College coronavirus response team, simulated the role of public health measures aimed at reducing contact. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did it just say right there at the top of the paragraph? It's the very opposite of everything that we have heard from the scientists when they're up front with President Trump and so on. Well, that's not peer-reviewed study. That hasn't been looked at by many different people. That's not a double-blind or triple-blind. That doesn't have a Z-score or an elemental P-score or whatever. It doesn't have any of that going on. It was just a report that was sent, that was looked at by not very many people, and then they went in with this report and used it to tell the president the economy needs to be shut down. We believe this will happen if you don't shut everything down. One study, one report. Now, a student with an associate degree in science should know better than to base their entire paper on one study that's not been peer-reviewed, that hasn't been looked at by many people, and call it science, as if that makes it fact. Well, this is what the science is telling us. Is it? Are you sure? And your proof? 
I mean, we looked at your bibliography and you just have this one source. Gets more troubling. Neil Ferguson is the British academic who created the infamous Imperial College model that warned Boris Johnson. I put a picture of him up in case you forgot who he is. That without an immediate lockdown, the coronavirus would cause 500,000 deaths and swamp the National Health Service. So Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK, got the same report. Before that, they were following the model of Sweden of herd immunity. But this very same report that Fauci and Burks took to Trump, took this very same, same report to Johnson, shut the economy down. And he did. But Ferguson admitted something. Ferguson admitted that his Imperial College model of the COVID-19 disease was based on undocumented 13-year-old computer code that was intended to be used for a feared influenza pandemic rather than a coronavirus. Is that scientific? Ferguson declined to release his original code so that other scientists could check his results. He only released a heavily revised set of code last week after a six-week delay. I don't know about that. And then it gets even worse. Professor Lockdown Modeler resigns in disgrace. Now the one who made the report that caused President Trump to change his mind, that caused Boris Johnson to change his mind, has been disgraced. Why? What did he do? During lockdown, he went out and visited his friend who was a married woman and got caught. Not, shall we say, social distancing. And coupled with other things, before they could let him go, he resigned. And notice what's being said about Ferguson's model. Imperial College model Britain used to justify lockdown. A buggy mess, totally unreliable, experts claim. Another one, Imperial College UK COVID-19 numbers don't seem to add up. Top right, influential COVID-19 model used flawed methods and shouldn't guide U.S. policies, critics say. And now my PowerPoint locked up. Here we go. One author summarizes the situation this way. The authors of the Imperial College model shared their findings with the White House Coronavirus Task Force in early March. Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks then met with President Trump privately and urged him to shut down the U.S. economy and destroy the record Trump economy. A new critique of the Imperial College model finds that the study is completely unusable for scientific purposes. The study is a sham. Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks pushed a garbage model on the White House, the American public, and destroyed the U.S. economy. That's somebody's summary of what's going on. And this scientist was seen being discredited on social media and other places. Here's Elon Musk, an engineer worth over $36 billion, who founded SpaceX, among other things. And what does he say here? Thanks. Something more should be done. This guy has caused massive strife to the world with his absurdly fake science. Some might be thinking, so why is he sharing all this? I'm not showing you this to take sides in it. We faithfully follow the directives of the government here. We've stayed within those confines. We're thankful for their conscientious response to what they think is true. And I think we should do that. In fact, Jesus told us to respect the governing authorities. Our governors have not had an easy job these past few months. And I think you would agree. And sometimes they make mistakes. But even Jesus respected the governing authorities. I'm not trying to be a sideline quarterback. I'm not trying to go on record saying who is right and who is wrong. I don't believe this is a religious liberty issue in any way. I truly believe our state leaders see it as a public health issue, and I take their hat off to them for doing what they feel is best. So I'm not commenting on that. What I am commenting on is the amazing reality that the entire world is driven and mesmerized by this thing called science. But sometimes, sometimes, science can end up being fake. The reality is all true science is rooted in God. Would you agree? I've heard people saying, we need a miracle. We need a miracle drug. We need a miracle vaccine. But a vaccine is really a dumbed-down version of the disease so that it won't kill you. But it's just triggering the amazing immune system that God has put within us. And so when you take a vaccine, what happens? Well, your immune system creates antibodies so you can no longer get that sickness. But let me be clear, the vaccine is not so much the miracle as the true miracle of the immune system that God has placed inside of us to be able to change and adjust and overcome. 
And we get all heady thinking, we solved the world. No, it's the immune system Jesus gave us that made us able. You're doing a little tinkering along the way, and good for you. We're happy for what you've done, but you're still millions of miles away from being God. Johannes Kepler, Isaac Newton, John Ray, Robert Boyle, they were all in our Sabbath school lesson last week. Great scientists, and they all understood that their work revealed even more about the handiwork of God's creation. In fact, they studied, many of them, Isaac Newton studied his Bible far times more than about science or anything else. And he's remembered, even by secular, you know, Isaac Newton, he was a great, he was a great theologian, friends. But after the French Revolution, 19th century science began to move from a theistic worldview or God-centered worldview to one based on naturalism and materialism, and then there was no room for supernatural. And then these philosophical ideas were popularized, of course, by Charles Darwin on the origin of species in 1859. And since that time, science has increasingly distanced itself from a biblical foundation. If you want to be, what was the phrase, academically honest as a scientist? But let me propose to you, as Solomon wrote in these pages of this book, there's nothing new under the sun. Revelation 12, verse 7, a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. I don't think it's a new idea to you that I don't think this is fist-to-fist combat. I don't think they're just slugging it out. This is a war between ideas. Who is fair and just and true? Who can be trusted? Who's telling you the truth? There's a letter from Pen of Inspiration. It says, False science is one of the agencies that Satan used in the heavenly court, and it is used by him when? Today. The false assertions that he made to the angels His subtle scientific theories led many of them from their loyalty. Where is this? In heaven. Nothing new. False science, false theories, false assertions. And then it comes right down here to earth, continuing the same source, same letter. Having lost their place in heaven, they prepared temptations for our first parents. Adam and Eve yielded to the enemy, and by their disobedience, humanity was estranged from God, and the earth was separated from heaven. And what was the argument? The context, fake science, fake theories, fake assertions. They sounded good. In fact, they sounded really good, but they weren't accurate. A manuscript here says, The fallen foe deals in his science today as verily and in the same way as when he deceived Adam and Eve. Webster defines science as this, Knowledge about or study of the natural world based on facts learned through experiments and observations. Can we learn things from experiments and observations? Absolutely. We can learn all kinds of things. And should we observe those things? Absolutely. Should we apply? And Yes, of course. Here's the scientific method. Ask a question. Do background research. Construct a hypothesis. Test your hypothesis. Analyze the data and report your results. You've heard it. I've heard it. How about this here? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We already alluded to this. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Satan, asking a question. And the woman said in verse 2 to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Satan is doing some more background research, as if he needs more. And then he states his hypothesis. You surely will not die. Is that what he told you? That's not what's going to happen here. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I imagine this is very right, you know, very much right there with the same hypothesis he shared with the angels in heaven. Is that what God told you? Well, let me tell you, he's really not fair and just, and true. In fact, God is keeping something from you. How do I know? As one of the covering cherubim, I have access. I've seen behind the veil. Let me tell you, I have some inside information. I have a different hypothesis. I've done my own background analysis of the situation. And let me tell you what's really going on. And so what's left of this scientific method for Adam and Eve? Well, test your hypothesis. Come on, honey, take a chance. And you know the rest of the story. Eve did that very thing. She tested Satan's hypothesis. She got Adam to test the hypothesis. 
They were left to analyze the data and draw a conclusion. And was Satan's hypothesis right? Well, in a sense, their eyes were open. But did they become like God? People are still trying to achieve that today, in case you haven't noticed. It sounded good. It sounded reasonable. Here was this beautiful creature in the garden. It seems it's worked out well for him. He appeals to my reason and intellect. But it was fake science with a pretty bow on top. Do you remember Noah? Of course you remember Noah. You like that story from your childhood. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Genesis. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So what's the question? Why is God keeping good things from us? We've seen these other women, some like to to think that somehow the angels are procreating with human beings. That's not at all the case. We see other places that the sons of God are God's people. The daughters of men are the heathens. And so they're seeing these people that are outside, that God said, leave them well enough alone. But they say, but they're beautiful. What's the problem? God is keeping something good from us. And so they do their background research. Sure enough, they are beautiful. They're friendly. They're nice. They're kind. We like their company. What's their hypothesis? God doesn't know what he's talking about. We know better. And so they test their hypothesis. And it says they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. They're doing the choosing, not God. And notice it's of all that they chose. They don't need to just take one. Let's take many. Maybe there was some Darwinian back then who said, you know, he just looked at the animals and and denied the origins of man and thought, well, if it feels good, go for it. If one is good, 18 must be better. And as we further analyze the data, what do we find? Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And then we have three superlatives. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How sad is this? It grew out of a distrust of God and his word. God created for Adam one wife. But maybe there was some scientific study proclaiming how men are more happy with multiple wives. Just a word of caution. I imagine you could find a scientific study that would prove just about anything that you want to believe. Does that make it true science? And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And for 120 years, Noah preached. And I imagine for 120 years, the scientific community had a field day, scoffing. Say what? Rain? Flood? Out here? That's never happened before. How's that going to work, Noah? That's impossible, Noah. Find us some scientific evidence that could ever happen, Noah. (laughs) Impossible. Taken from the Review and Herald, it says this about the time of Noah. The preacher of righteousness was proclaimed to be an ignorant fanatic who had no knowledge of the laws of nature. Ignorant fanatic. Hasn't a clue, this Noah guy. They reason from scientific principles that the world could not be destroyed and that no attention should be paid to the predictions of Noah. How did they prove it? Scientific principles. We have the facts to prove it. It's not going to work. I have a book here of 95 ways that this flood will never happen. (laughs) So clever. Last paragraph here. This philosophy or science falsely so-called, sounds like she's quoting Timothy, exalted the law above the lawgiver and things created above the creator. And we could keep going down this road of fake science, the devil appealing to our reason, our intellect, but here we're tipped off to a clue, a clue to not being duped by fake science, a clue that keeps us from being sucked in to fake science. Did you catch it? Fake science exalts the law or laws of science above the lawgiver. Further, fake science exalts things created, you and me, above the creator. And what's the outcome? Well, we know the story of Noah. And it didn't end well for the scoffers. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. I think Noah provides a pattern for the faithful to follow, safeguards, if you will, against fake science. I'm going to put them up there rather quickly. First of all, safeguard number one, Faith in the word of God over experience or reason. Wait, are you telling me I'm supposed to check my my brain at the door? No, come let us reason together. But I need to have faith in God's word over 
what I see, what I hear, what I touch, what I feel. And he gives us good reason and good evidence for that. But ultimately, that's what I need. Because if I'm waiting all the time, prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it. Do I have any faith? And am I trusting in God at all or am I just trusting in my senses? Number two, safeguard. Faith led to action. Faith led to action. What action? Well, he built an ark for start and he preached for 120 years to a rough crowd. Lord, I'm going to preach again. Maybe there's somebody out there that will listen to what I have to say today. Nope. Thirdly, Noah took a stand against the norms of culture. He wasn't a polygamist. We have very few generations. I'm sure he knew the Ten Commandments very well that were audibly passed down, I believe. Thou shalt not commit adultery is very exclusive in nature. And we see Noah go into the ark with his wife and his sons with their wives, one each. Took a stand against the norms of culture. Not only that, he took a stand against the norms of of diet and health. Why? How do we know that? Well, he took more of the clean animals and left the unclean not left, but only brought what he needed of the unclean. Was that according to the norm? I'm sure it was not. Lastly, or number four, Noah embraced the grace of God. What do you mean he embraced the grace of God? Friends, well, first of all, Noah's name means rest. And while Noah was a good man, let's face it, he was still deserving of death. But God in his mercy provided a way or ark of escape, an ark of safety, if you will. And so I just want to caution everyone here, be very wary of scientists that do not place faith in the Word of God over their experience or reason. The world tells us that is true science, but at the roots, I believe it is fake science, and at some point, they will be deceived. Be very wary of scientific studies that seem to have an agenda to support the norms or the pitfalls of culture. Be very wary of scientific studies that seem to dismiss God's grace as necessary. Because we don't need God to win. We don't need his grace to win. No, we just need science. Science will win for us. But the reality is, without the blood of Jesus Christ, each of us is hopelessly and utterly lost. Without the ark, Noah and his family, as wonderful as they were, would have been lost. Spirit of Prophecy says the devil feared for his life in the midst of the storm, and the angel kept a hand over the ark of protection. It's God's grace that carried them through, nothing else. Oh, well, Noah was a good builder. Don't believe it. God, grace that carried him through. We have one more. Stands as an example for us today. We could turn to Daniel 1. Mentioned our Sabbath school lesson this week. Daniel chapter 1, verse 4. Children in whom was no blemish, well-favored, and skillful in wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding, and science, and such as had ability to them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. Here's a couple of articles. Ancient Babylon's first to use geometry. Another one, Babylonians developed trigonometry, superior to modern-day versions, 3,700 years ago. This was the epicenter, if you will, of top-notch thinking and science and research. And here they come in as the newbies. Who are you? Verse 5, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So here we have a handful that is selected, the cream of the crop, and we're going to train you in our scientific methods and models and ideas, and we're going to give you the best of the best. You're going to eat from the king's table. Sounds better than potluck. I like potluck, but anyway. Verse 8, but Daniel and his three friends purposed in his heart. It says Daniel purposed in his heart, but we know his three friends did too, that he would not defile himself. Nathan Crabtree brought up a great point in our Sabbath school class in regards to this text. It means to decide in advance. You don't wait until you're confronted. Daniel decided in advance. He purposed in his heart, I'm not going to sin against God. Oh, this is a small thing of diet. Can't you just eat around the edges? You know, whatever the garnish is, that's yours. But he requested vegetables and water for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, what happened? Verse 15 tells at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better. Then all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Verse 17, for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. By the time we get to Daniel 2, we see again that this group, that purpose in their heart to be faithful to God stands head and shoulders above the rest. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The wisest man in his whole kingdom, you could say the world for that matter, nobody But then Daniel, his three friends, they have a prayer meeting. God reveals they're above the rest. 
pen of inspiration says the Chaldean magicians were placed where they had to acknowledge the inefficiency of their scientific power so that God could show the superior wisdom possessed by those who worship him. He sought to lead princes and people from broken cisterns to the living fountain by revealing the divine science of eternity. And again, the same safeguards, faith in the word of God over experience or reason. Faith led to action. Like I said, they could have eaten around the meat. Daniel chapter 1 verse 10 says, when the chief of the eunuchs doubts their plan, he says, why, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Really, the Hebrew word there means your circle, meaning there's other Hebrew young men. They're not making a fuss. What's your deal? There's other Adventist kids that aren't making a fuss. Why are you making a fuss? Can't you just fall in line? But very respectfully, they request. Their faith led to action. Number three, they took a stand against the norms of culture. Boy, did they. And number four, they embraced the grace of God. how they do that? They said, our God is able to deliver us. And how were they delivered? Only by God's grace would this ever have happened. And again, they stand as an example for us today. A little more counsel. Here's some advice for medical students. Let not medical students be deceived by the wiles of the devil or by any of his cunning pretexts, which so many adopt to beguile and ensnare. Stand firm to principle. At every step inquire, what saith the Lord? Say firmly, I will follow the light. I will respect and honor the majesty of truth. That's the advice for the medical student. Yeah, but my professor says, what saith the Lord? A little more advice. Guard against contamination from the evil influences with which they are constantly surrounded. When their instructors are worldly wise men and, they fo- and their fellow students, infidels, who have no serious thought of God, even Christians of experience are in danger of being influenced. Nevertheless, some have gone through the medical course and have remained true to principle. They would not continue their studies on the Sabbath and they have proved that men may become qualified for the duties of a physician and not disappoint the expectations of those who have encouraged them to obtain an education. Well, we can't mix God and science. You really can't afford not to. Because if you don't, it's a slippery slope and somewhere you'll get off course. Well, I won't have the, the prestige behind my, my title. Maybe not now, but you will later. Which is more important? As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. As it was in the days of the three Hebrews, so it will be at the end. Another image is going to be set up. Daniel 7 talks about four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These are a matter of fact. And next we know comes the little horn, and the little horn directs attack on the facts as explained by God. He will think to change times and laws using some fake science. And we have seen how quickly the world over can change in unprecedented ways in response to science. And so is it so far-fetched to think that this little horn will think to change times and laws and do so by using this unquestioning arm of science to show the necessity of Sunday sacredness? I mean, now the planet has conducted a forced scientific experiment. And they have all these statistics. They're already reporting them. How desperately our world needs rest. Already, NASA satellite images have documented a 30% decline in nitrous oxide levels. Carbon monoxide emissions, mainly from cars and trucks, down 50% in New York City, according to researchers at Columbia University. The EPA has recorded the best air quality in Los Angeles than any time during the last 40 years. This planet needs a rest. Science says it. And it's a precedent on the books of what we need to do in light of science. So this little horn will think to change times and laws. He will persecute those who go with God's view of the facts. But at the same time, the Son of Man will arise. Judgment will be made in favor of the saints. Why? Because they decided long ago that the little horn is not their judge. That Daniel's name is their name too. God is my judge. Manuscripts tells us this. What is soon coming upon us? Seducing spirits are coming in. If God has ever spoken by me, you will hear before long of a wonderful science, a science of the devil. Its aim will be to make of no account God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Some will exalt this false science, and through them Satan will seek to make void the law of God. Great miracles will be performed in the sight of men in behalf of this wonderful science. Maybe this has something to do with Paul's warning to Timothy, and maybe it was preserved through time as a warning for us. O Timothy, O Matthew, O Ron, O Susie, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings, oppositions of science, falsely so-called. 
Great Controversy 572, God designed that man's intellectual power should be held as a gift from his maker and should be employed in the service of truth and righteousness. But when pride and ambition are cherished and men exalt their own theories above the word of God, then intelligence can accomplish greater harm than ignorance. I've seen that happen all too many times. We see the example of Noah, of Daniel and the three Hebrews, of Paul's counsel to Timothy. We could go on through the entire book, you know, all the stories of Scripture. But the safeguards remain the same. Faith in the Word of God over experience or reason. Faith that leads to action. Taking a stand against the norms of culture. Embracing the grace of God. And by God's grace, stand as an example for others today. That's what Noah did. That's what Daniel did. That's what the three Hebrews did. I believe that's what Timothy did. Paul did. Others did. And that's what he's calling us to do. And is that really so far-fetched? I mean, if we truly believe that our foundation is that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if he truly is the author of science, then why is this so difficult for us? I mean, yes, we can figure out a lot of things. And it's amazing the laws of nature that can be observed through study and observation and data. And the deeper we dig with humility, we really need to declare the wonders of the Lord because as soon as we think we've reached the end, we haven't. There's so much more. And then we reach the end of that and there's so much more and so much more. Can we ever fully understand the power and wisdom of God? Listen to what God said to Job. Job chapter 38. God is speaking here. He says, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Who shut in the seas with doors? When I said, This is as far as you may come, but no further. And here your proud waves must stop. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle of war? But what way is light diffused? Or by what way is light diffused? Who has begotten the drops of dew? How does that work? Can you bind the cluster of Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Who has put wisdom in the mind? Or who has given understanding to the heart? The bottom line, folks, is that God is so much bigger than us. We can't define him. We can't put him in a box. And how absurd to think that because we know a little bit about cellular or molecular biology, because we know a little bit about chemistry or biochemistry or microbiology, how absurd to think that we know enough now that we don't need God. No, science will be our God. And again, science has improved our lives in many ways, but science is not the silver bullet. Sometimes a hypothesis does not hold true. Sometimes even with all the controls on our experiment, sometimes things happen for reasons we don't yet understand or comprehend. So above science must be faith in the word of God over experience or reason. Why? Because God is the creator and inventor of all true science. He created gravity, centrifugal force, of all the rules of the DNA structures, of chemical compounds. And so really the study of science is the study of God. Isaac Newton understood that, but somehow the devil has warped our worldview to think that in some way God is bound by science. He's not. Creation is never above the creator. What scientific law can explain how Jesus created from nothing, but he spoke and it stood fast? What scientific law can explain how Jesus placed the planets in their orbit and filled the sky with stars and solar systems and solar systems and solar systems? What scientific law allowed the bush to not be consumed for the Red Sea to open and for there to be dry ground? What scientific equation brings about manna? Or water to spring forth from a rock? What scientific law can explain how an axe head floats? Or how chariots of fire take people to heaven? What scientific law allowed Jesus to heal the lame and the deaf and the dumb? To feed 5,000? To walk on water? To bring people back from the dead? And what scientific law can explain how Jesus was crucified? but how every demon of hell could not hold him in the grave. No, science can explain a lot of things. But friends, science cannot anywhere touch 
or explain an all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, infinite, self-existing, just, merciful, loving, holy, and glorious God. And that's precisely the point. All of these things reveal the very obvious fact that Jesus was not just a mere man. No, Jesus is the Son of God. God goes well beyond what we can explain, imagine, define, replicate, or think. And I imagine that's why Paul wrote here in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 and 34, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Friends, in a world that says science is king, there will be a group of people who have faith in the word of God over experience or reason, whose faith leads to action, who takes a stand against the norms of culture, who embraces the grace of God, and by his grace stands as an example for others. So the question is simple. By God's grace, will you be one of those people? O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and opposition of science falsely so-called. Friends, by God's grace, may we each keep that which is committed to us. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times that we have placed our reasoning and our intellect above or superior to what has been written in your word. Lord, I pray that you will grow our faith, that we will trust what is said in the pages of Scripture that we will act on what we find there, that we will rely upon your grace, that we will push against the culture, and only by your grace that we may be an encouragement to others along the way, that someday very soon we will not be fooled and tricked by fake science, but that we will be counted as one faithful to you to the end because of him who loved us while we were still yet sinners. We worship you today. We glorify, we honor you as our creator, our God, and our king. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.